All right, if you would please take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Song of Solomon, chapter number 5. Song of Solomon, chapter number 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Anthony, can I get just a a, a bump of volume and maybe in the monitors too? I'm struggling with a little cough today. I'm pretty sure it's not Chinese in origin, but Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We're returning this morning to our study of the book of the Song of Solomon, and I have heard more comments on this sermon series from the men in our church than anything that I have ever preached since I've been your pastor, and I cannot imagine why that is. Um, I'm glad you're listening, guys. Uh, To the ladies in our church... uh, I also have come to understand that some of your husbands are just chasing you around the house with an open Bible, reading love poetry to you. (laughs) And so you have my sincerest apologies. That was never, did not, did not see that coming. Um, But hey, the honeymoon, the honeymoon doesn't have to end, does it? The honeymoon does not have to end. Might as well keep the passion alive and you might as well... Have a good time in your marriage. You're going to be in it, God willing, for 50, 55, 60 years. You might as well enjoy it. And so I'm I'm thankful for whatever it is that the Lord's up to these days around here. But when you read the book of Song of Solomon, for those of you that maybe have not been with us over the past few weeks, probably need to just prepare you for what's about to come. Uh, The book of the Song of Solomon is divinely inspired erotic poetry. This is a book that is about human relationships, human romance, human sexuality, and marriage. And it seems like in the Song of Solomon, it really seems like it's all honeymoon. It it just kind of seems like it's hot and it's heavy. And it's two young people recently married that are enjoying the benefits of marital love. And maybe we read the book of Song of Solomon and we, we think, well, that's good for them, but that's not fair for us. But we we, we got to be married down here in the real world. And it's not always a honeymoon for us. Sometimes there's conflict and sometimes there's disagreement and sometimes there are issues. And we are going to read in Song of Solomon chapter 5 uh, one of their conflicts. It's not all perfect for this couple in Song of Solomon chapter 5. And so we have seen over the past few weeks, we have seen this couple get together. We have seen them learn to live together. But folks... That's the easy part. The hard part is you've got to figure out how to stay together. I mean, any fool can fall in love. There was even a song about that, right? Anybody can fall in love. And and look, if you've got like 30 free minutes and 25 bucks, anybody can get married. Literally, anybody can get married. But to make it last, that's something entirely different, isn't it? To make it last decade after decade and year after year to survive difficulties in raising children, to deal with the conflicts that come over major disagreements, to, to heal the wounds that come in the ordinary routines of marriage. There's got to be something deeper happening. Some of you need to figure out this morning, how do we stay together? How do we make this work over the long haul? Because you know that in your relationship, maybe things are tense. Maybe over the past few weeks as we've studied the Song of Solomon, maybe you've seen not the good in your relationship, but you've seen the difficulties. 
You've seen the communication problems. And you've seen the disappointments. And you've felt the resentment. Some of you are there in a difficult place right now in your marriage. Wondering, how are we going to stay together? How can we really make it last? Well, today we're going to look at the Song of Solomon, 5th chapter. And I think what the Bible is going to show us today really is quite simple. That the secret, if there is a secret, the secret to staying together is to quit fighting each other and start fighting together. Stop fighting each other and start fighting together. I'm going to show you how this couple learns to stop fighting each other and start fighting together. Song of Solomon 5.1. He speaks and says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then there are these kind of interlocutors that speak and they say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. She speaks. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. He says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with the dew, my locks with the drops of the night. She says, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I'd bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, that's the mechanism to open the door, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, she says to her friends, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. I'm lovesick. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. So in Song of Solomon, chapter number 5, I think we have an interruption to the, the otherwise Excitement and harmony and passion and physical intimacy, the romance, the joy, all the fun that this couple has. And I think you're reading about a conflict, a marital fight. And we'll talk about what's happening here as we go forward a little bit. But they've got to figure out how do we as a couple deal with one another once we kind of see the other person as they really are. Once the poetry stops, once the difficulties show up. Once we have to figure out how do we make this work over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, now what? How do we stay together? The truth is that for most of us in our marriages, the honeymoon doesn't last forever. Now, you can have a second, a third, and a 50th honeymoon. You can have periods that that are maybe higher and better than others, but there are going to be difficulties in our marriages too. I read this passage of Scripture, and I think about a guy that I used to work with when I worked at a builder's supply years and years ago. And this guy's name was Danny. And Danny worked out on the lumber yard. And guys who work on lumber yards are great places to go for romantic advice. And right before, <clears throat> right, be- right before Amy and I got married, he was dispensing his advice to me about marriage. And Danny had been married, I think, seven or eight times. And so he was clearly an expert. He knew exactly what he was talking about. And he said, he said, man, he, Danny called everybody Jake. So he said, Jake, he said, I don't know why, Jake, he said, that, that honeymoon, that first week of marriage, he said, it'll be the best week of your life. He said, every week after that's going to be the worst. But that's the way a lot of people feel. 
You've got this, this excitement at the beginning of the relationship, the infatuation, the passion, the physical stuff that's going on. And then the years start to pile on. Maybe the weight starts to pile on. The resentment starts to pile up. And before too long, you've got two people that used to be in love that now don't even really like each other very much. Looking for excuses as to how they can get away from each other. Never talking about the things they very much need to talk about. You've got difficulties and conflicts and people that just say, man, I have no idea how we are going to make it. Maybe if we even care. How do we stop fighting each other and start fighting together? Well, let's see if we can work through this fight they have here and figure that out. So let's talk about how the conflict begins. What, what's the source of the conflict? What are they fighting about? Well, set the stage for you. Verse number two, she's in bed and he's not. She's in bed trying to sleep but unable to sleep. He knocks and he knocks because he's locked out. Now, I know that a lot of times men in particular are not always great at relationships. We're not always great at picking up on cues from our wives. So let me just help you here, guys. If you're locked out of your own bedroom, you've got problems. There's an issue, okay? She's not happy with you somehow. So there's a problem. Well, well what's the problem? The problem is that he's coming home too late. She's already in bed. He's not there. He comes in or tries to come in. He comes home. He's knocking on the bedroom door. And what's he doing? He's quoting poetry. Oh, my love, my perfect one, my dove, my, you know, all this stuff. He says, my head is wet with dew. He says, I've been out all night until he says, my hair's wet with the dew from the morning. You know what's on his mind, right? Well, she says in verse number three, I put off my garment. How could I put it on? I'm in bed, I'm not getting up. She says, I've washed my feet, I'm not going to get them dirty. Typically in their culture, washing your feet would be the last thing you did before you got into bed. She says, I'm not getting out of this bed for you, buddy, sorry. So she's hurt that he's out late. She's hurt that he comes home expecting physical activity. He's hurt that she doesn't reciprocate that desire. And he leaves. And so they're both hurt. Now, my question for you is, please do not answer this out loud. My question for you is, who's wrong in this passage of Scripture? I told him not to answer out loud. Couldn't resist. Who's wrong? Well, if, if this book is recording an actual love story that involves Solomon, the king of Israel, the son of David... He may have had a good reason to be out late. Sometimes kings do have to do things that are important. Maybe he was doing something related to some kingdom emergency. Maybe he was having a budget meeting. Maybe he was planning a war. Maybe he was doing something that was legitimately important. We don't know that, but it's possible, right? Maybe it really was something emergent. On the other hand, maybe he was just at Buffalo Wild Wings with his friends. Watching a ball game and drinking too much beer. We don't know where he was at. We don't know what he was doing. So maybe he's wrong. Maybe he's not. Maybe she's wrong. Maybe she shouldn't have been so impatient. Maybe she should have been so been more available. Maybe she's wrong. Maybe she's right. Maybe she says you should have been home before dark. Where have you been? But isn't it fascinating that in our marriages, two people 
can experience the exact same situation and come to two totally different conclusions about what happened, who's right, and who's wrong. You interpret it in different ways, take the exact same evidence, like two detectives take the exact same evidence and come up with totally different scenarios in your mind. Take, for instance, this scenario. This may have happened to some of you. He decides that what he should do is buy a boat. And he thinks, sure, sure, I'll use it to go fishing every now and then. But on the weekends, when the weather's just right, we can ride around the lake, watch the sunset together, be together. We've got the money in the bank to cover it. What's the big deal? So he buys the boat without telling her. What does she think? That idiot spent that much money without even talking to me about it? And all he wants to do is go fish with his buddies just so he can get away from me. She has a male friend at work. She thinks nothing of it. It's just somebody to talk to who helps get her through the work day that she hates every single day. He looks at it and says, how could you possibly have a work friend that you eat lunch with, a man that you hang out with that's not me? And it's a fight. Or put it in the terms of Song of Solomon. He wants to have sex again. She says no. Again. He feels neglected. He feels invalidated. She feels used and ignored. Even in the literal, even in the little rituals that make up the ordinary rhythms of married life. Washing dishes. Taking out the trash. Folding the towels. People can feel used. People can feel neglected. People can feel ignored. People can feel hurt, right? What does that happen to us? Why does that happen to us? Why these little things become big problems? And I promise you this. It's almost always little things, isn't it? They're probably, those of us that are married, we've probably never had a fight about anything important, have we? I'll give you, give you a for instance, from, from our relationship. Several years ago, before we moved to Alabama, Amy and I had to you know, pray about moving to Alabama. This was a decision that was going to upend our whole lives. It's going to affect our children, our parents, our whole family. It would change the course of our lives. And so I talked to Amy about it, and her answer was always, always, this massive life-changing decision. We'll do whatever you feel like God wants us to do. That was it. That was it. No conflict. No issue. No disagreement. But where does the toaster go? Right? Why does that happen? Whether, whether, it's a, whether it's a little thing or a big thing, why, why does that happen? Why is there this conflict in marriage? Well, I've tried to tell you from the Song of Solomon as we've looked at it over the past few weeks that what God's ideal for marriage is is that two people come together in intimacy and they are naked and not ashamed, right? That's from Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. God created marriage as this relationship where we could be fully seen, fully visible, completely vulnerable, and yet totally loved. We could be with this other person and we could know that even when I am at my worst, I'm going to get their best. But here in this text, think about what's happening. This man comes home late and he wants to go in and be intimate with his wife. There's a sense in which he is putting himself out there being vulnerable, knowing that he can be rejected, and then he is. And then he is, okay? And so he's exposing himself in a personal way, and then he's rejected. He's hurt. 
He's wounded. He's disappointed. And so now he is naked, maybe not literally, at least not yet, but maybe he's naked and he's ashamed. He's hurt. When we hurt, disappoint, embarrass our spouses, what we are doing is we are taking this person and we are looking at them in their vulnerability and we are saying, you're not quite good enough. And we're making them feel shame. And then that shame will compound into anxiety. That shame will compound into anger. So that we exist in our marriages, instead of being naked and unashamed, we are very much naked and ashamed. We're afraid. We're anxious. We're lonely. We're withdrawn. We turn into ourselves instead of giving of ourselves. And friends, that is a theological problem. The problem in your marriage is, is not who takes out the trash. That's really not a problem. So, well, who should take out the trash? Whoever notices a can's full. That'll help you if you let it. The problem is deeper. The problem is how we perceive others, how we perceive of God, and how we perceive of God's relationship to us. How does God relate to us? God relates to us on the basis of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God looks at us in our nakedness, and he does not heap shame on top of us. He does not heap embarrassment on top of us. He heaps grace on top of us. And he's called us to live that out inside of our marriage. So here's the good news today. You are a sinner who is married to another sinner. And what your sin inevitably does to you and to them is it makes each of you turn inward. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 15 talks about people before they meet Jesus. Paul's writing to Christians before they met Jesus. He said, you were living for yourselves. That's why we have problems in marriages. Because we live for ourselves and not the other. And you can see that selfishness creeping up here in Song of Solomon. In this couple that's so self-giving. In this couple that so readily embraces the idea of being naked and not ashamed. You see the selfishness creeping up here. Think about what she does here, right? Well, think about him first. Since he's the one that's late. That was selfish to be late. If it was important, all he had to do was call her. I mean, I know he couldn't call her, but... Like send a carrier pigeon or whatever they did back then. Let her know, honey, I'm going to be a little bit late. The way he comes to her quoting poetry, trying to, uh, trying to initiate intimacy, I think it's selfish because this is not the same quality and caliber of poetry he had back in chapter 4. This is rushed. This is hurried. He just made this up on the spot. And if you read carefully what he says in those verses, half of it's about him anyway. Remember in Song of Solomon chapter 4, he's talking about her body. Her hair is like a flock of goats and her teeth are like all these well-washed sheep, Right? He was talking about her. Now he's talking about himself. He's talking about his hair. He's talking about how tired he is, how hard he's been working. But then her words to him. Hey, buddy, too bad. It's too late. You missed it. Not tonight. It could be even when she says, verse 3, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? Seems that she's laying in bed naked. So earlier in the evening, that probably she had the same idea he had. And now all that excitement has kind of curdled into anger. The longer she had to lay there, the longer she had to wait, the matter she got. And so now she says, uh-huh, when you get home, you're going to hear about it. She doesn't want to be inconvenienced. I already washed my feet. She doesn't want to be inconvenienced. There's selfishness 
as they turn away from their spouse to themselves, that's the source of their conflict. And whatever the conflicts are in your marriage, that's the source of yours too. Now let's talk about the growth of the conflict. The growth of the conflict. He's disappointed. She's hurt. What's the next move? People's feelings are raw. People are aggravated, wounded. Verse number four, he tries one more time to get her to open the door. Puts his hands to the latch. And it seems like she has kind of a change of heart. My heart was thrilled within me. But when she goes to open the door, he's gone. So he says, I'm just going to get out, go clear my mind, get away from here. She goes after him. Verse number six. Verse 7, she says the watchman found her. She can't find her husband, but the watchman find her. don't know exactly what that means. I think it's kind of a metaphorical type idea that, that probably she's guilty. She feels hurt that they've had this fight and her conscience is bothering her. She knows something is not right. So things are not good. They're away from each other. They're hurting. They're guilty. They're mad. Earlier in the book of the Song of Solomon, when things were a little bit better, They use this expression in Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse number 15 where they say to their friends about their romance, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. What they're saying in that passage of scripture is our romance is passionate, it is growing, it is blossoming, but we know there are little foxes that can come in to our vineyard and they can eat everything up and destroy our relationship. Help us catch the little foxes foxes. Last week in chapter number four, I told you that their relationship is like a garden that has to be cultivated, that you have to invest in it. You have to put time into a garden to make it fruitful. If you've ever had a vegetable garden that's ever been ransacked by a deer or some rabbits, you can relate to this verse because you will know that they will come in and they will do great damage. They see their marriage in those terms and they say there are little threats that can come into our marriage and over time they can destroy everything that we have worked to invest in. And now, some of those little foxes are starting to nip away at the fruitfulness and the joy in their marriage. Their tempers are up. They're feeling raw and they're feeling hurt. And y'all, the big threats really are little things that grow over time. Now, some of you are in marriages where you've had to live through the fallout of infidelity. You're having to deal with the conflicts of abuse. But for most marriages, it's just Song of Solomon 5 stuff. It's hurt feelings and it's resentment and it's disappointment. So what are some of the little foxes that may be hurting your marriage? Well, one of them's laziness. You see laziness on display in both parties here, I think. Romance is too much work. Don't want to put forth effort in letting her know I'm not going to be on time. Sex is going to be too much of, of an effort. And so I'm just not going to try. There's a kind of laziness that drifts into marriages over time, isn't there? Where we just don't seem to value the other person enough to put any effort, to put any energy, to put in any real work. I don't know if it's getting quiet because getting tired or hungry or conviction. <laughs> laziness in a marriage. Laziness in a marriage looks a lot like this when you got your phone in your hand. And you never talk. Laziness in a marriage looks a lot like people not taking care of their appearance. Guys, you used to bulge right here. Now you bulge right here. She noticed. Laziness. Neglect. 
you married a real person. That real person has real needs, real issues, real problems. They need real conversation. They need real touch. They need your time. And we give ourselves often to our jobs, to our hobbies, to our interests, to entertainment, and not to our spouse. Neglect is a little fox. There's another little fox here. Song of Solomon 5, it's separation. The couple's not together. You're not going to solve your conflicts if you're not together. And you cannot be together as a married couple, obviously. You cannot be together 24 hours a day. But I wonder, even as married couples, how many of us spend 24 quality minutes together a day? That's really meaningful and really important. People need meaningful time. Guys, Especially, she needs meaningful time from you where she is the center of your world and where she is the center of your attention. Verse number six, there's a little fox I would call resentment. He gets hurt and he leaves. Mad at her and he says, I don't want to be around her. Unforgiveness, anger, those things grow over time to where it's just easier not to be around each other. All of us know, I could say more about this, all of us know of couples that are older married couples that seem to just really hate each other. And the only thing that's keeping them alive in their 80s is they're just living to make the other person miserable. That's all they've got, right? But you know as well as I do that they didn't start out that way. They didn't, nobody gets married so that that can be their goal. But over time, angerness and unforgiveness build. There's a little fox of double standards and unrealistic expectations. Expect so much of him or so much of her that she never can meet it. And then you're always disappointed that they don't meet your unrealistic expectation. Men do this. Especially younger men today where, where the use of pornography is almost, uh, almost epidemic or really is epidemic. They go into marriage having unrealistic expectations. And they expect a porn star in the bedroom and Paula Dean in the kitchen. And women could say, that's right, Brother Jesse, you get them. But the truth is, I can remember... Ten years ago, when half the women in America were in love with fictional vampires. I mean, good gracious. We deal with unrealistic expectations in our marriages. The little fox of fear. The little fox of fear. People go into marriages having been hurt in previous relationships, having been hurt by previous marriages, having been hurt by parents, having been abused at some point along the way. And so they go into the marriage expecting that same kind of behavior from their spouse. And they always are eyeing their partner with suspicion, often when there's no reason to. And so that every action is interpreted through a filter of, you're trying to hurt me. But maybe they're not. So how are they going to fix this? How are they going to fix this? How can we, how can we go on a fox hunt together as a married couple and just shoot those jokers in the head and move on? Well, let's talk about the resolution of the conflict. The resolution of the conflict. Verse number 8, the bride gets her friends together. And she says to them, we need to find my man. I'm just lovesick and I'm sick over the fact that things are not well. Let's find him and let's get together. They help her do that. She begins to talk about him. Then in verse 3 of chapter 6, she says this great statement, I am my beloved's and he is mine. I am my beloved's and he is mine. You know what she does right there when they get together? 
she returns to the first principles that made their marriage what it was. So many times as, as believers, we're on this, 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 this quest for the secret and the silver bullet and, and the fix and the cure for all of our marital woes and for all of our difficulties. When in the end, folks, it's simple spiritual principles that provide the foundation for a healthy marriage. It really, really is. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. She's saying there we are in a relationship where we are giving ourselves completely to one another. He has given himself to me. I give myself to him. That is a foundational Christian idea. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And wouldn't it be amazing how many of our marriages would be transformed completely if we would start living like we were Christians? And I'm not saying that to be ugly by any stretch of the imagination. But doesn't the Bible tell Christians to be quick to forgive? Doesn't the Bible tell Christians that we should not let the sun go down on our anger? You thought that not go to bed angry stuff, that was marital advice. That's not marital advice. That's advice from the Apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 4. That's advice for God's people. Doesn't the Bible tell Christians that we are to be patient? Doesn't the Bible tell Christians that we are to be content? These basic ideas form the foundation of a healthy Marriage, in fact, I don't know, have any idea how to do this, but one of these days I'm going to write a, a best-selling Christian book about marriage, and I'm going to go on conferences, they're going to have me on The View, and I'm going to give everybody <laughs> my advice about, that'd be a short visit, I promise. I don't know, I don't know it'd be worse on them or me, but I'm going to give everybody, I'm going to say, here it is, here's the secret, here's the 100% foolproof way to divorce-proof your marriage. Here is the way to make sure your marriage will last until death do you part. Here is how you have a love that is a Song of Solomon 4 kind of love, a Genesis 2 kind of love, an Ephesians 5 love, a 1 Corinthians 13 love. Here's the secret to all of it. Here's how you do it in your marriage. Here's how you can do it. I'm going to give it to you for free. You're not even going to have to buy the book. Because printed in my best-selling Christian book on marriage is going to be one page. And on that one page is going to have one sentence. And that one sentence is going to be Luke chapter 6 and verse number 31. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Brother Jesse, how can I, how can I improve my marriage? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That applies to your spouse just as it does to everybody else. Indeed, it applies to your spouse before It applies to everybody else. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Well, if you're married, it's her to start with. Or it's him. It's your neighbor in the bed. That's your your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? And doesn't he go, go on to say that when we get married, we become one flesh? And he says nobody's ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, right? And he says to, her, says to me, and he says, men, you love her the way you love you. Men, you know her needs, your needs. You know when you get hungry. You know when you get aggravated, and you know what aggravates you. You know when you have needs for other things in life. You should be that in tune with her, because when you married her, you became one flesh. So my book's getting a little bit longer now, but what's the point? The point is that you, if you really want to fix the little foxes, For good and forever. You've got to become the kind of spouse that you want them to be. Do unto others 
the way you want them to do to you. Not do unto others the way they've done to you. That will kill your marriage. Do unto others as you want them to do to you. If you want to be married to a patient wife, be a patient husband. If you want to be married to an attractive woman, try your best to be an attractive man. That's going to take a work of God for some of you guys. But (laughs) If you want to be married to a happy person, work on developing the joy of the Lord. When I prepared this sermon, I worked through all this stuff about little foxes. Truth is, I don't know anything about foxes. You know, um, I've had a couple in my backyard. That's about all that I know about foxes. And so I turned to Google. And I Googled, how do you keep a fox out of a garden? You know what that, the number one solution is? The number one solution is this. Build a fence. And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. Build a fence. What God is asking for some of our married couples to do today is to build a fence around your marriage. A fence of patience. A fence of joy. A fence of forgiveness. A fence of committing to serve the other. A fence of saying, I'm going to do to him or I'm going to do to her the way I expect him or her to do to me. And so the couple in Song of Solomon, verse number 4 of chapter 6, when they get together, when they get together, he speaks first to her. I think that's fascinating because I go back to chapter 5, or yeah, chapter 5, and I think, well, who is wrong in the fight that started all this? I don't know who was wrong. I suspect that he was. But he does speak first. In one sense, it doesn't matter who's wrong, does it? What matters is that when we realize there's a problem, we take responsibility for that problem. And we build the fence. And we say, I'm going to help change it. We need some way to be drawn out of our selfishness. Here's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse number 15. That Jesus died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Without Jesus we're always going to be drawn inward. But as we know him and love him and trust him and behold him. We're going to be drawn outward to become like him. And I guarantee you that no matter how long you've been married. No matter how much your spouse adores you. I guarantee you she or he would be happier being married to Jesus. Having a little bit more of his patience. Having a little bit more of his forgiveness. Having a little bit more of his joy. And having a little bit more of his peace. And the only way that's going to happen is when we look to him and allow him to transform us. Now today some of you I know are in difficult marriages. And maybe you do have somebody to fight with. But you don't have anybody to fight by your side for your marriage. You're married to a non-believer, or you're married to somebody who has no interest in the things of God. Maybe there's abuse, maybe there's difficulty, maybe there's no spiritual connection, I don't know. But I just want to talk to you for a minute from 1 Peter chapter 3. Because you hear these things about having a Christian marriage and two people working together and repentance and forgiveness and all this stuff. And you know that apart from God's work, that's not going to be your reality. You know you're in this by yourself. You know you're the only one building the fence. And I'm sure that it has to be very, very difficult. But here's what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3. And he's writing specifically to wives with unbelieving husbands. He says, wives, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Nobody else's but your own. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. 
when they see your respectful and, and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Not that those things aren't fine or important, but they're not ultimate. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter says a lot there that would get me in a lot of trouble, I'm sure, if I went too far deep into it. But the principle I want to pull out from those verses is this. That if we're in a marriage, it's hard. If we're in a marriage where there's a spouse who's a non-believer, or if we're in a marriage where we're our spouse is just not going to help us build the fence. Those verses tell us, first of all, that we have a God who cares. We have a God who loves us. But second of all, they tell us we have a God who loves them. And our God loves them through us. You see how Peter says that? He says, those husbands of yours may not be obedient to the word, but they can be one. They can be one without the word. As you live out the joy and life of Jesus In your marriage. I want you to hear me today. The Lord will help you do that. He will help you do that. So I just don't feel that. I don't know. Well let me tell you this. All throughout the Bible. Especially the Old Testament. But all throughout the Bible. God describes himself. As a faithful husband with an unfaithful wife. Over and over and over again. He shows patience. He shows forgiveness. He shows grace. God knows what it's like to live that story. And he will give you help to do it too. Bottom line is though, all of us, if we're going to do this thing called marriage, all of us need the Lord's help, don't we? Some of you today need help building a fence. So we're going to stand together today. And I'm going to ask you to come if you need to. And present yourself to the Lord. Present your marriage to the Lord. And say, Lord, help us to build that fence. To be joyful, to be patient, forgiving. To treat the other the way we want to be treated by the other. Lord, help us to build a fence before these little foxes take everything that you have worked so hard to give us.